0: Well, I hope you're not sick of me yet. We're back for one more final episode on this Lion King week. This is another very special one. This is with the co-director of Lion King, the original 1994 Lion King, Rob Minkoff. He talks about his early days as an animator at Disney, what it was like working with James Earl Jones, and his visit to the set of the new Lion King film. So stick around. Roll it.
1: You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome
0: again to Disney One by One. Another special interview today, but first, remember you can check us out everywhere on the internet at Disney1x1, and if you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, we would love that, and we'll read it here on the show. And now, he's the director of Stuart Little 1 and 2, The Haunted Mansion, Forbidden Kingdom, Fly Paper, Mr. Peabody, and Sherman, and of course, the co-director of Lion King, which is why he's on the show with us today, Mr. Rob Minkoff. Rob, welcome to Disney One by One. Thank you so much. So I ask everyone that comes on this show, whether they're a friend of mine or someone who's worked on a Disney movie, what their Disney history is. So sure. did, did you grow up watching Disney films? Were you into that as a kid or did it kind of come later in life?
1: i did you know um it's so funny it's hard for people to understand i think in the in the day and age that we live in what it was like uh when there really was not that much content out there there was no video obviously no streaming and no internet so you know what you saw was what was made available so there was very little but i was an a, a animation fan uh, growing up. I uh, loved cartoons of all kinds, not just Disney cartoons, but I loved Warner Brothers cartoons and MGM cartoons. And um, I started really to kind of get into it. I remember the first thing that really sparked my interest in, in sort of digging deeper were some Super 8 films that my dad had. Uh, one was of Sleeping Beauty, of the big uh, dragon battle. And then the other was a Mighty Mouse cartoon. And I remember having them on the uh, Super 8 on, on a kind of a editor I could watch them frame by frame and seeing the animation, how it was done was, was really amazing to me. So, um, you know, that kind of, kind of kicked it off for me. I don't remember how old I was, but, but then a a really interesting thing happened to me, which maybe you don't know was that I I used to do children's theater when I was a kid in, in Palo Alto, California, which is now very famous. It was not very famous when I was there, but I was doing children's theater and I met Kirk Wise doing a show, you did, you know this, you're nodding your head.
0: Well, no, I just know Kirk Wise's.
1: (laughs) So Kirk and I, Kirk Wise, who directed Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Atlantis, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so Kirk and I met doing children's theater when we were both maybe 15 years old. We were in a production, ironically, of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, (laughs) um, which happened to be the very first production ever done at this theater called the Lucy Stern Community Center. Uh, but, the, but the original production was done in like, I don't even know, 1937. And this was 1977, maybe. And so, we, uh, so it was like the 50th anniversary or the 40th anniversary of the theater. And they were going to do a, another production of So White. And both of us got in it. And then somehow we discovered that we both loved drawing and we both loved animation. And he had this great book called Tex Avery, King of Cartoons, which he brought uh, to a rehearsal one day. And I was like, oh my God, it was so amazing. Because again, there was almost nothing published about animation at that time. There were like a handful of books about animation. So this was like kind of a rare find. And Kirk had this book. And then there was another book that he loaned me called uh, Fun with a Pencil by Andrew Loomis, which was like an instructional book about how to draw, which is a fantastic book actually. If you're interested in drawing, it's a great book to have. Anyway, so we became friends and then we started watching cartoons together after school and we used to draw all the time together and then we decided to make an animated film in high school and he was the one that told me about CalArts mm-hmm. when I was a senior. He was a junior when I was a senior and uh, and then I applied uh, to get into Cal Arts using that film that we made together as, as a, uh, part of my portfolio. So there you go. That's some of my deep, deep. Yeah, no, that's great.
0: Buddies with the Beauty and the Beast director as kids. Yeah. <laughs> Because Cal CalArts was sort of your your way into Disney, correct? they have a partnership yeah. or how did that work?
1: Well, CalArts was, was a school that was really founded by Walt Disney. So there were a couple of schools in Los Angeles. One was called Shenard Art School. And then there was the LA Conservatory of Music and Disney had a relationship with the owners of both schools. And a lot of the Disney artists uh, went through Chouinard. Uh, some, of the, some of the artists became teachers there, vice versa. You know, I, I guess it was in the 60s, possibly, maybe before that, that maybe it was Disney came up with the idea of combining both schools and making a kind of a unified school with the idea that they would teach all the different arts, not just animation. In fact, uh, the animation department came quite, quite a bit later, actually, from the founding of the school. But they had an art uh, department and film and video, uh, music, theater, uh, dance, you know, so they really covered everything. With the idea that you know disney employed all different kinds of artists every kind of artist you know from people who made the films obviously animators and all that but then they he, he employed dancers and singers and and choreographers and filmmakers and you know set designers and costume designers et etc cetera, etc cetera. so the idea that there could be this school that would be able to train everybody was kind of a, a utopian idea and then the other thing i think that they used to talk about was that if an artist went to Cal Arts, he could go in uh, a singer and he could come out, you know, a painter. That just because you had an uh, idea of what you wanted to be, the the, uh, the cauldron or the, the the you know the kind of a uh, uh, petri dish of, of the school would allow people to develop and and possibly find things or or change course. So it was an interesting school. So um, so obviously I went there. Lots of people from Disney Animation. Uh, were students there. You know, John Musker, who directed Little Mermaid and uh, Aladdin and Moana, uh, was a student there. John Lasseter was a student there. Tim Burton was a student there. Brad Bird was a student there. Chris Sanders was a student there. (laughs) Kelly Asbury was a student there. So a lot of people went to CalArts.
0: Speaking of cauldrons, um, I believe your first Disney film you worked on was Black Cauldron.
1: Before before I worked on that movie, in 1982, um, I got to spend a summer uh, at Disney doing an internship, uh, under, uh, Eric Larson who was one of the nine old men who was still kind of working and, and mentoring, uh, the younger animators coming through the place. So that was an a- amazing opportunity. Uh, so I got to go there. And what was crazy about that was that, uh, me and two other CalArts students, one was, uh, Dan Jupe, we went there and it was during the strike. So the animation union was on strike. And so the building at Disney in Burbank was completely empty. It was completely abandoned. And all the animators were out on the sidewalk picketing. Uh, so these three little students uh, would drive onto the lot every day past the picketers, you know, <laughs> begging forgiveness. But we weren't scabbed. Because yeah, we weren't <laughs> working. We were working. We were just being mentored by uh, Eric Larson. But the place was empty so we could walk into everybody's office and check out what they were doing because they weren't there, which was amazing. So we got to absolutely everything that was going on at the studio at the time. And I think Black Calden was definitely in production at that time, but it wasn't, uh, but it was a year later that I got hired.
0: So you worked on that and great mouse detective and Oliver and company. And then all of a sudden Lion King directorial debut, are people, people surprised when the, they realized that was your first movie that you directed?
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I spent, you know, I'd had a fairly, you know, long career at Disney kind of working my way up through the ranks to get that opportunity. And I did direct a couple of Roger Rabbit shorts yeah. before that, and I directed a live-action thing for the theme park called Mickey's Audition. It was also before uh, Lion King. I was
0: looking. I tried to find Mickey's Audition. I couldn't find it on YouTube. I don't know if anyone uh, got no, it on VHS I, or something. I do have a
1: copy. I, I, somebody said that they saw it recently, so it, it exists Somewhere, I I need to get a copy.
0: I, I know Lion King has quite the history and development history, and went through a number of directors and folks working on it. What was your perception of the movie when you first came on board? What were you coming into?
1: My you know my perception, I think, was uh, created or developed before that, before I got onto the movie, because you know when you were working at the studio, everybody was aware of the movies that were coming down the pike. Um, and there were, you know, fairly regular displays of artwork. And so people could kind of check in and, you know, it wasn't a secret per se. So there'd be some storyboards and things around. So you could see it, you you know, I think there was uh, a general sense and and maybe my sense was that the movie and and this, and, 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 obviously I got a little bit of a, a deeper window into it when I read the script, uh, the original, the initial draft of the script, it was a very naturalistic approach to telling a story about Mm lines, I remember when I came on the movie, actually, I read the script and I just found my initial notes from that first day because I dated the page. And in my initial notes, one of the notes that I had was Simba should be exiled, which was not part of the original story, Said Simba should be exiled. And then later when he grows up, he uh, has a dream where he sees the ghost of his father come back to encourage him to return that was not in the original version of the movie. In the original version of the movie, Simba, uh, Mufasa was killed and Scar was behind it, but no one knew it. Nobody knew that Scar was responsible. Simba didn't know it, or but it was just played differently. Rather than telling Simba to run away, um, Simba actually grew up in the Pride Lands and was just not a very good ruler, uh, That which was kind of how he was portrayed. He was sort of irresponsible, but he was in the Pride Lands and never really left. That was a big change. And Timon and Uba in the original version of the story were uh, friends, were childhood friends. They were actually little kid characters who were playing at the waterhole with uh, with uh, Simba and Nala. And so that was that was another kind of the big changes was to make Timon and Pumbaa these these outcast characters that he meets obviously later when he goes into exile.
0: That's really interesting. There's definitely a pretty widely publicized story of Lion King being sort of the the rival to Pocahontas, and a lot of people wanting to go on Pocahontas because it was proclaimed as as the as the chosen one. Yeah. I guess my my question is why did people get to pick who was deciding who got to work on what?
1: Tell you okay, so this was a historical thing. So, for the very first time in the history of the studio, uh, they decided that they were going to make two movies at the same time. Okay. So that was the very first time that ever happened. Uh, the studio before then would make one movie after another. Okay, I think. I mean,
0: but some would be maybe in development, but as far as like animating,
1: correct. But there would be a, there would be a movie in production, then there would be a movie in development, and when the movie was finished in production, the same people would roll off of one onto the next. Right. Um, there may have been a slight, that may not have been true about uh, Dumbo and Bambi, because I think that they may have been done slightly concurrently, and they had a different group of people animating on Bambi than they did on Dumbo. So that was maybe the one time where that happened. So so here we were in, in uh, whatever, 1992, 93, I guess. And I, yeah, it was 92, I guess. There was a long period where Disney movies would be re-released to movie theaters, which was a kind of a big, very fundamental thing about the studio, uh, which is they had these movies that uh, were evergreen. You know, they could play to a, another generation of kids. So every seven years, they would, they would re-release the movies into movie theaters with a proper full re-release. And that's why kids for many generations got to know those same movies and same stories. And that was really a kind of a fundamental thing about Disney for such a long time. But then, you know, uh, VHS videos came along and there was a, a debate about whether or not to, to release them because of how it might impact. In fact, many of the people, many of the artists certainly felt concerned that releasing them on video would mean that they would never be released again in movie theaters. And I think to some degree that's come to pass. But what ended up happening were the movie, uh, the, the, the video releases were so successful that they had to do more, right? And there were only so many movies in the library at the time. And I think they realized that they were going to run out of movies, which was kind of a good thing in a way, because they said, geez, we've got to make more movies. So can we make them faster? So that was really what happened that year. They said, yeah, why don't we try to make two movies at the same time? That way we can release one every year. The only way to get a movie into theaters every year was to make them simultaneously. So that was the first time that they'd done that. So they basically announced the studio is going to be split in two, and there are two movies to work on. And, and so really it was the top artists who we were going after who were, who kind of had the pick, you know, the Glenn Keen, for example. And we tried to convince Glenn to work on Lion King and uh, didn't work. Didn't happen. He did not he didn't work on Lion King.
0: So it was just kind of a free for all because no one had ever dealt with this before.
1: Yeah. It was just that they, I mean, literally by saying we're going to have two movies, suddenly there were, there were double the number of jobs to fill. You know, there were, there were twice as many animation jobs as there had been before. So that really kind of, you know, kick things into another gear.
0: So you jump on Lion King with with Roger Allers. And like I said, I talked to George Scribner a few weeks ago and kind of about the duties of a director on an animated film. How did you and, and, and Roger split up the duties? Was it that you kind of both did everything or did you take different aspects of it?
1: We were very specific. So what we decided we would do, because um, we'd never worked together before, but we knew each other, was that we said, "Let's let, we'll partner on the development of the story. We'll we will partner on the you know basically the story reel process. But once the movie is in story reel, uh, we'll divide up the movie into sequences and then divide up the sequences between us. So he had his sequences, I had mine, and what that meant was. I would he or I would would uh, cast our scenes, the scenes of the movie, hand them out to the animators, tell the animators what to do, look at the animation tests, work with the animators and approve the animation and approve the layout. You know, the layout, all all the things that you would do uh, from the story reel to finish, we would be responsible for in our different sequences, which isn't to say we weren't looking over each other's shoulders, because when when you're in the sweatbox, meaning when you're in, in the editorial looking at the dailies looking at the film we are both there but if we were looking at my scenes i i i could give the notes and and make the decisions but that didn't mean roger couldn't have an opinion or like say well you know i think whatever but if we didn't agree we didn't have to fight it out it was like either of our choices about which way to go and that was kind of how we made the movie
0: and you had crews in california and florida is that correct
1: yeah Florida was up and running at that time, actually. Mark Ken was in Florida, who was a you know, super important animator on their movie. Um, and there was a number of other people in Florida at the time. Uh, but I, I I had actually directed the first thing that went through the Florida studio, which was uh, Rollercoaster Rabbit. So I knew the team there pretty well.
0: So did you work on I Just Can't Wait to be King? Was that your segment? No, that was Rogers. That no, was, okay. Because <laughs> that was done in Florida, I think.
1: That was Rogers.
0: Well, so what were the scenes you helmed?
1: I did Circle of Life, uh, The Stampede. Um, the Elephant Graveyard, Hakuna Matata. I don't know. I, I could, yeah. They're all so great. <laughs> yeah. The Simba, uh, Simba and Scar scene, where kind of tricks them into going to the Elephant Graveyard. Yeah.
0: What was the the hardest character to cast in this movie? Were you involved in that process?
1: Yes. The hardest character to cast? I don't know. That's a good question. I've never had that question before.
0: What's the What's the best story from an
1: audition? How about that? Well, there's a couple of really good ones. Um, Probably the most famous one is Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah. They were both uh, Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella were both in Guys and Dolls in in New York on Broadway, and got called in. I guess their agent uh, called them to say that there was an audition for this Disney movie, and they went to the uh, to the office to do the, the recording, and they bumped into each other in the lobby and said, "Oh wow, you're here! Why don't we ask if we can record together?" And so they recorded. But what they what they auditioned for was the hyenas. And it was the scene just before the hyenas go, scare the wildebeest. They're talking about how hungry they are. One of them says, I could eat a whole wildebeest. And, and the two of them were so funny together, but just sort of funny and you kind of fell in love with them. So when we were listening to the tapes, I remember hearing the tape and going, oh my God, they would be great as Timon and Pumbaa. And then they became Timon and Pumbaa. The other crazy story was, one day we're, we were in a meeting after lunch and Peter Schneider, who ran the department, came in and said, Whoopi Goldberg wants to be in your movie. said, really I was like how did that happen (laughs) apparently she had had lunch with elton john and elton john told her about it she was like i gotta be in that movie so so peter said what can she be and we're like well she could be zazu you know not not necessarily super funny if she's zazu i don't know uh but then we said hyena she could be a hyena but we wouldn't, we didn't know if she wanted, would want to be a hyena. I was like, you know, it's kind of a villain, villainous role, and maybe she would want to be more heroic. But uh, she said, yes. So we had uh, uh, the initial storyboard on that sequence of the hyenas was actually drawn by Gary Trousdale, one of the co-directors of Beauty and the Beast, who was, you know, kind of uh, between directing gigs uh, at the time. And so he was doing storyboards for us. And his idea was to do it with cheech and chong that was kind of his concept and so he did a board which was quite funny um and then we were like couldn't we get cheech and chong and at the time they were not working yeah you got half of it (laughs) you got cheech but not chong but i've I've met chong since then and i told him that story and he was very disappointed
0: (laughs) when you bring a guy like james earl jones into the booth what do you tell him or do you just let him go
1: um pretty much i mean he's was so amazing uh you know he would do these great vocal exercises before he would speak he's got just such an incredible commanding voice that you know you just kind of get out of the way but one of the things we had to give him the scripts in advance to make sure that he was prepared because he did not like being surprised with uh, new lines on the day although that inevitably happens when you work on a movie because things get changed up to the last minute
0: we were like I said, we were talking to Jim Hill, and he was talking about how this movie just kind of came together in the last in the last minute. They're just constantly changing as it was going. Would you agree with that, or is he, or is he
1: a little no, unfounded? I, I, I wouldn't agree with that because what happened was when 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 I got on the movie, they had like I said, they had a, kind of an approach to telling the story, and then we said, can we change it? And Don Hahn um, said yes. Uh, we can. In fact, that was the whole idea. So we convened a small team of story artists, Brenda Chapman, who was head of story, Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, who were good friends and colleagues and liked their story ideas and story senses, and uh, me and Roger. And We sat in a room and hashed out the new outline, which includes every single scene in the movie as it is as it is today, with the exception of one scene the only scene that was not in the original movie was the scene where Scar tricks Simba into going to the elephant graveyard. And that wasn't part of the original plan. And then when we kind of got deeper into the storytelling, it was like, it would be better if, I think it was must have been happenstance that Simba came across the elephant graveyard. So we said it would be much more interesting if Scar is responsible as the villain and kind of tricks him into going. And so that scene was added later. Um, but otherwise, the whole movie was really mapped out. Now... It evolved from there, but, you know, the scenes had to be created and written, but every scene, every the idea, the intention of every scene was there in the beginning. So we were struggling because the movie is quite uh, dark and, and uh, intense, obviously, you know, with Mufasa's death and all that. Um, so the thing that we were really struggling was with was getting the balance of comedy into the movie so that it just didn't all seem so heavy. Because we did a, I remember doing a screening once where there wasn't as much comedy and it was a and it was pretty grim, you know, and it felt the, watching the movie just felt really grim. Um, and so we were like, God, you know, we've got to, you know, every opportunity we could have to kind of lighten the mood we, we took advantage of and and then, you know, went as far as we could with, you know, the fantasy of just can't wait to be king or j- again, just to kind of keep the movie exuberant because, again, it was it was pretty serious.
0: When did you realize that The Lion King became The Lion King?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that the, 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 if I was going to pinpoint it, there was a test screening that we did in Pasadena uh, before the movie was released. And there were two, we were going to screen the movie twice. The first time was for a typical audience of kids and maybe their parents. And the second screening was for teenagers, which was not a typical thing to do. But they were wondering if the movie, how the movie would play for that audience, and we saw the first screening and it went really well. But then the group, the creative group, left to go have dinner and kind of discuss notes because we weren't still weren't finished with the movie. Um, so we went to have dinner, but then we decided as we were leaving dinner to go check on the theater to see the second screening, which had the the older audience, the kind of you know more the harder to reach audience, and we went into the theater and I remember exactly when we went in, which was uh, when Rafiki comes to tell Simba about his father, that scene. And we walked in, and from the, you know, Asante sana squash banana, that whole thing, and Simba's saying, leave me alone, and you're weird, and he goes, I know who you are. And he goes, you're Mufasa's boy, and then runs away, and that that whole scene, and it was, people were riveted to it. We're like, wow, this is, they're completely into this movie, which we didn't necessarily know or expect, at that time. But when we saw that, it was like, wow, this really could reach to a pretty broad audience. Because the hard thing about the, the selling the movie was that when we were making the movie, it, 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 there was no, it didn't exist. It didn't exist in culture, right? You could say, oh, we're doing Little Mermaid, the Disney's Little Mermaid. You're like, oh, okay, I think I I have an idea of what that could be, or Beauty and the Beast, or Aladdin, all those, all those movies had something to, to hang it on, you know, had IP and had, had a cultural context, but the lion King did it. So when you said we're doing this movie called lion King, people would look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, What, what is it? It's a What? And then, uh, so when circle of life was done, we would show that. And it really had such a great impact that people were at least interested and intrigued about what the movie was. And so they ended up using that as a trailer about six months ahead of the release of the movie, which is, again, was pretty unconventional to do, but it, it kind of, we really needed that because again, nobody, there was no awareness. There was no, there was no built in or baked in awareness of the, of the movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, that it might be the first one that wasn't based on a book or a short story or a fairy tale or a fable.
1: Absolutely. Um, yes. And now it is. Although just... although, some, although it was, you know. <laughs> it was hamlet that's true yeah <laughs> a lot of people talking about uh, kimba the white lion yeah that as well that uh, that as well
0: well now and now it's become quite ingrained in culture and pop culture and even to the extent that they've made a new version of it so uh, have have you seen the new one i have
1: i was at the premiere
0: were you involved in it in any way in consultant
1: or anything Sean bailey who runs disney live action films called me up it was a very nice call to uh, you know it was a very thoughtful call when just before they announced the project and uh, told me that it was going to happen, you know, and I had honestly I had mixed feelings about it, but I uh, my, my biggest fear, obviously was that the movie would come out and people would say it was better than our movie. That, that was my big fear. So a few months later, I just happened to bump into John Favreau and we were acquainted. So it was a kind of an odd moment. I was walking into a building that he was leaving. And there was no one else around and we sort of stopped in the lobby and he looked at me, I looked at him and he said, I owe you a phone call. And I said, yes, you do. And so we ended up going to lunch and I decided, you know, it would be best to be as helpful as possible. I mean, it, it really wasn't in my interest for them not to, to, to succeed with what they were trying to do. You know, I told John a, a lot, uh, you know, as much about the kind of the, the history of the project and the origins and the decisions that we made kind of, you know, getting to where we got to. And then he and he was actually very gracious about the whole thing you know he was actually quite uh you know sensitive about it and very minchy. um and then invited me to go and see what they were doing and so i went down to the studio got to put on the vr headset and fly around pride rock which was very cool uh and then went back later with roger allers and irene mecky and we got to see some of the early footage so we weren't really involved per se in the sense of you know contributing specifically to, to what they were doing, but, you know, we were, we were around and, you know, obviously very interested in in what, what they were doing and, and, uh, uh, but then we saw the movie at the premiere, obviously. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre experience, especially because I know the movie, the, the original so well. And, you know, some of the movie is different than what we had done and some of it's the same. And I, I actually, just to be perfectly honest, I, I was the most uh, in, impressed with uh, uh, his approach to Timon and Pumbaa uh, because I thought I thought Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner were terrific, and they were they were you know a great version of those characters, but totally unique and totally their own. And I love the fact that they rewrote the jokes because I laughed, you know, kind of in that sort of more sort of unexpected way. And and really kind of uh, really enjoyed that. Enjoyed what he did there. So when I saw John after the the premiere, I I, uh, I mentioned that.
0: Yeah. Well, yours is better, but yeah. <laughs> but I like. But Tom, Timon and Pumbaa
1: were really great in the oh, new one. I liked really them a lot. Yeah, it was really terrific. You know, it was great to see that.
0: Yeah. No, it's always interesting to see what they do with these, whether they're whether they're warranted or not.
1: Sure. I mean, it's a it's it's honestly it's a tough thing. If we maybe if if, if Roger and I. Had been more involved, you know, would have turned out somewhat differently. Um, but, you know, it no, wasn't in the cards.
0: All right. Well, I'll wrap this up by asking you a question I ask every guest on this show. Can you rattle off your three to five favorite Disney movies besides The Lion King? Three to five. Yeah, and, uh, and, and and why you think those
1: are like the best of the Disney canon? Pinocchio, Dumbo, uh, Sleeping Beauty. Why? I don't know there's something about all three of them they're just completely different from each other uh kind of has always been my number one you know throughout my my own you know sort of animation career if people ask me i would always say pinocchio because it's just so incredibly beautifully made and uh the story is very touching and it's very disney it's i guess it's one of the most for me most kind of really digs into that Whatever that Disney magic thing is, it really kind of gets me there. Dumbo, I just think is so incredibly fun and and you know inventive and uh, like I'm a Ward Kimball fan, so seeing his work in it is always amazing and great. And it's and it's completely different. You know, it's not so heavy, it's not so big and uh, important. You know, as Pinocchio is, it's it's lighter and more fun and kind of super entertaining. And then you know, I I really i I've, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Sleeping Beauty because. I, maybe because I saw that uh, the, that uh, eight millimeter film of it when I was really young, and then I remember seeing a re-release in the theaters and really being blown away. I love the, the design, the approach, the Avon Earl uh, graphic you know uh, design. It was amazing, the animation is amazing, and, and I watch it now with my, my daughter. I have a son and a daughter who are actually quite young. I have a six and a four-year-old, and I've watched all of those films more than a few times. It was the very first movie I showed my son was Dumbo, actually.
0: Yeah, and we've watched those relatively recently, and Pinocchio, is, it's messed up, but it's fun. Dumbo is so short and sweet and fun, and yeah, Sleeping Beauty is possibly the most beautiful of the Disney films. It's, it's amazing. So, All right, well, Rob, why don't you tell us uh, what you're working on now? What, what are your latest projects?
1: <clears throat> wow, well, I'm working on an animated movie that is an adaptation of Blazing Saddles <laughs> called Blazing Samurai. Nice. Instead of an African-American man becoming a sheriff of an all-white town, it's about a dog that becomes a samurai in a world of cats. And so they they hate him because he's not a cat. Nice. Is, is Mel, Mel Brooks on board? Mel Brooks is a producer, and he's one of the voices. Wow, that's awesome. So we've got a fantastic cast. Samuel Jackson is in it. Michael Sarah is in it. Ricky Gervais is in it. Uh, terrific terrific cast so um, you can look for that soon.
0: Cool and uh, if people want to follow you they can uh, find you at Rob Minkoff on Twitter at Rob Minkoff on Twitter and, uh, and Instagram. Alright Rob I appreciate the time thanks so much for coming on Disney One by One Absolutely. And don't forget you can find us all over the internet at Disney 1x1 and please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and we'll read it here on the show we'll be back tomorrow with Pocahontas so we'll see you then Thanks for listening to the
1: Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast.